From the widespread use of contraception to the adaptation of a nearly endless variety of recognized genders, our teens and young adults are bombarded with cultural influences that rob and distort the meaning of human sexuality. Today, we'll talk to popular chastity author and speaker Jason Everett about the challenges of communicating Catholic sexual ethics to teens and young adults. We'll also talk about the approaches you can take to help the young people in your life reach a fuller and deeper understanding of God's gift of gender and sexuality. I'm Dr. Bob Rice, professor of catechetics at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Rice, a catechetics professor here at Franciscan University of Steubenville, and we're talking about conveying Catholic sexual ethics to teens and young adults. I'm joined by our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, professor of systematic theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon, professor of biblical theology and the new evangelization here at Franciscan. And we're pleased to welcome our special guest, Jason Everett. Jason is a best-selling Catholic author who has spoken to more than a million people about the virtue of chastity. He holds undergraduate degrees in theology and counseling, as well as a master's in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Together with his wife, Kristalina, he founded The Chastity Project, which provides abstinence resources to teens and young adults. One of his many books is Theology of the Body in One Hour, which is the basis of our discussion today. Jason, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. It's great to have you back on campus. As I know you got many degrees here. We actually were classmates yep. mm -hmm. back in the day, uh, which is fantastic. And it's been incredible to see the work that God has been doing in you and through you yeah. in terms of proclaiming uh, the message of purity and chastity to teenagers. You've been doing this for a while. Yeah. Maybe you could just start by sharing, uh, what does that language purity and chastity mean in today's culture with youth and young adults? Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me on. It's always good to be home. <laughs> yeah. Steubenville's in many ways just home. I yeah. just feel so blessed ever having to be spend four, four and a half years here learning. Uh, and uh, it was such a platform for me to go forth with this message of chastity. And I think with young people, they have chastity. The, the terms chastity, celibacy, abstinence are very often confused, and they don't mm -hmm. understand, okay, celibacy is the state of not being married. You know, abstinence is the absence of sex. And then chastity is a fuller term. It's a, a virtue that refers to purity, not just of your actions, but your thought, your imagination. John Paul, I think, explained it well, St. John Paul II, when he said that when we grow in purity, we come to a greater awareness of the gratuitous beauty of the human body. Mm. And that beauty of masculinity and femininity becomes a light for our actions. And it's a, it's a dense quote, but I love it because he's pointing out the body's not the problem. You know, the body is the solution and mm -hmm. learning what the body is telling us and revealing that we're called to love. Yeah. And so it's not a neurotic, repressive idea of our sexuality that we need to stuff and kill and eliminate those desires, but <laughs> right. integrate yeah. them in a healthy way. Yeah, I, I find that very freeing, yeah. uh, the positive uh, valence, mm -hmm. the positive spin that you give to chastity, which I think is more, more often than not 
perceived as something repressive, negative, a set of grim prohibitions yeah. around which you organize a very unhappy life. <laughs> Cheerless celibacy, as Dr. Johnson puts it. But I, I, I find uh, your own treatment of it so refreshing, so liberating, and I'm, I'm delighted that your rise has been nothing short of meteor meteoric. I mean, when I first knew you, you were, you know, about five feet high, I knew nothing. <laughs> now you know everything. Uh, and, uh, You've met almost as many people as the Holy Father, whose memory you certainly have uh, consecrated your life to, and we're all so admiring of what you've done. Oh, you know, your discussion of chastity reminds me of the shift that we need to kind of make whenever we present biblical, Christian, Catholic teaching, because it's so easy to make it seem as though it's law-oriented. These are simply commandments to be kept. If you don't want to go to hell, keep them, you know. Yeah. Whereas this emphasis on chastity and purity and fidelity and all of the other virtues, I think is a much more constructive and positive way, but not just a rhetorical spin that makes it more effective, but you know, the grasp of the actual reality of what it means to be human. I've heard it said that, that what muscles are to the body, virtues are to the soul. And so you wanna build up virtues, especially chastity, because when you look at chastity, you're really talking about not just self-control, but self-possession. Mm -hmm. But it's a self-possession that is ordered to self-donation. But you can't give something that you don't control, yeah. and you really have to dispossess yourself in love in order to enter into marriage and survive, you know? Yeah. But I think, I think chastity is that point of entry, and the source of so much you know, unexpected insight for young people, but also for us old ones, too. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and because of this, the, the church's teachings on human sexuality are good news. I mean, the church is teaching on abortion, homosexuality, gender. It's good news. I think all too often we get put into a defensive posture where we're trying to just come up with an apologetic to defend it right. instead of what we should be doing, which is propose it, which is what the gospel was intended to be. And so John Paul was giving us through his theology by the way, the gospel of the body. Like this is good news and we need to absorb it, understand it and proclaim it, not so much by what we say, but more importantly by we how we live. And if yeah. we do that, I think the kids will go for it because they can spot a fake and they see authentic joy. Yeah. Well, I think the last thing the church uh, could pull off uh, would be a sort of arbitrary imposition mm -hmm. of the chaste life, yeah. something oppressive. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't sell any bananas. Yeah. Nobody's interested in that. I, I think to propose it uh, and to maybe uh, point to our Blessed Mother, a kind of Marian comprehension of the chaste life, that here is a woman who is younger than sin, yeah. as, as Bernanos puts it. What does that mean? Who can imagine a state that pure, that virginal, that wonderfully, innocently chaste, a kind of openness, a certain delight, a, a bounce in your step. She's always looking for something new, always open uh, yeah. to God. I mean, for that to happen, I, I think you need to have that chaste uh, setting uh, of the spirit, the soul, this virginal receptivity to receive the other in all of his or her mystery. I mean, that's, that's a virtue worth cultivating. Yeah, when I spoke to the college students last night, I told them, you know, let's 
Forget the how far is too far conversation and just for a minute, ponder the love that existed between Joseph and Mary. I think, I think the, the idea we have of their love is way too sterile. We've seen Catholic art of Joseph depicted yeah. as an octogenarian man. <laughs> Why? Well, we right. need to protect her virginity. Well, yeah. we learn from like the story of Susanna in the Old Testament, like being elderly does not cause you to automatically grow in purity. Yeah. He, he was, Joseph protected her purity through his love. His love, his intense love for her was not yeah. a threat to her virginity. Yeah. It's precisely what protected it. Yeah. And so to help them to understand that his youthful because he's probably an 18-year-old guy, yeah. but his, his virtue is what protected her. Yeah. And to, to really contemplate the tenderness of affection that yeah. they had between each other yeah. is, is a great source, I think, of growing in purity, seeing what it really looks like. That's a beautiful image, obviously, particularly for our students, but I know you travel quite a bit mm -hmm. and you're dealing with mission territory, yeah. young people that you know wouldn't even know who Mary and Joseph are, yeah. and they're coming with baggage. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're coming with preconceptions. What are what are some of those major obstacles or preconceptions that you find as you preach this, this gospel of joy yeah. um, that are really the hangups that you find as a speaker you need to deal with? Well, I think when you walk into a typical, typical Catholic high school thing, oh, we've heard this before, you know, chastity, yeah. litany of regulations, I'm going to get pregnant, die of an STD, and go to hell. You know, thanks. I've <laughs> been there, done that. And as a result, they come kind of a bit close. But if you come to them not wagging a finger, but being open and honest with them. I find them remarkably receptive to this. I mean, after speaking to more than a million teens on six cons, we've never had a disrespectful audience once. Mm. Kids come up afterwards and say, oh, I know what you mean about divorce. My, my, my dad's on his ninth marriage right now, one boy told me in Washington. You'd think they'd be jaded and disinterested, right. but they're remarkably open. Like, wait a minute, how do I love? One boy came to me at a Catholic high school and he said, yeah, he said, I'm really having trouble with pornography. He said, I go home on Saturday and I watch it for 12 hours. Mm -hmm. And then I go to bed and I wake up on Sunday and I watch it for 12 hours and then I go back to school. He said, I don't even enjoy it. It repulses me, but I don't know how to live without it. And these kids, you, you are, I'm shocked how constantly open they are to learning the good news about God's plan for human yeah. love. Yeah. As long as you're not shaming them mm. and you're saying, hey, you know, you're not the problem. You know, you're created for love and you know it. And, and challenging them to realize it's never too late to start over, I find they're open. Yeah, amen. What about gender issues? I mean, obviously that's a huge thing in our culture. And, you know, it's one thing to talk about, you know, sexuality and it's another thing to try to not seem, you know, the bigoted way yeah. that media and society portrays us. How do you address those kinds of topics? Yeah, I remember being at the Papal Vigil at World Youth Day in Poland, and a girl in our pilgrimage group pulled out her cell phone. She said, look, I'm applying to Stanford University. Here's my college application. I have to pick my gender. And she starts scrolling. And there were yeah. 18 genders to pick from, yeah. and male and female were not even options on the list. Right. Facebook has 58 genders. Facebook in the UK is up to 71 now. You could be intersex, non-binary, transmasculine, two-spirit, gender fluid. Right. And it's like, what's going on? Yeah. Is what's going on is what Vatican II said, that when God is forgotten, the creature itself grows unintelligible. Although Facebook does have male, female. Yes, they're open-minded yeah. <laughs> So it's, it's getting dicey. A throwback. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I have to say, that raising this question of LGBTQ and all of the rest in the alphabet soup of, you know, postmodernism, um, I'm, I'm almost, I'm almost projecting Regis now because he's so uncharacteristically buoyant uh, today. <laughs> but the um, the Generation Z that we're talking about, millennials and beyond, strike me as being well in the parable of the of, of the of the sower and the seed. It's really a parable of the different kinds of soil, mm -hmm. rocks, thorns, and all of the rest. It, it, it strikes me as being something that even if they're open, mm -hmm. they're crippled, they're paralyzed, they're incapable 
of saying, well, I love this talk, now I'm going to go live it for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems to me that the grace of the Holy Spirit, yeah. you know, it's sort of like what Jesus said to Peter, put onto the deep and lower your nets. We toiled all night. Yeah. We caught nothing. You know, yeah. and, and there really is a divine appointment. You know, when you're dealing with an evil and adulterous generation, your harvest might be really slim. Mm-hmm. Your nets might be really empty. You know, but there's a time that the grace will be given and the word will be sown and the lives will be changed. But I'm just wondering exactly when that will be. I I was talking to a a high school girl who was a camp counselor and she was describing her her group of counselees, of campers. And uh, there was one guy who basically said, you know, I'm I'm transgendered. And another guy who said, no, you're a male. And then all of a sudden it was a free-for-all for the first 24 hours. And he was ostracized, the one who said, you're a, a man. Yeah. He was ostracized for the entire camp period. Mm-hmm. He was a bigot. This was hate speech. Yeah. And all he did was just to kind of state the empirically obvious. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't mean to <laughs> yeah. Yeah. do a number on Regis, but I, I, I do have hope. Yeah. But at the same time, I have this realistic sense that hope has got to really be willing to persist. Right. Yeah. Well, well, Scott, I, I may be steeped in a state of pessimism, which is deeper even than your own. Uh, this buoyancy is pure facade. It's a disguise I, I wear. <laughs> I'm relieved. I, I think you're spot on, though. I mean, what does Jesus tell us? It's pretty telling. Uh, without me, you can do nothing, which means the only thing you can do is sin. You can take ownership of your sin. But virtue, it's got to come from me. Man without grace is less than zero. He's a kind of demonic nothingness. So. How do you segue from the guy that hears the talk and is convicted to the guy who's now living a life of stellar chastity? Like that chap who spends 24 hours every weekend immersed in pornography. How do you rescue him? Yeah. Well, one thing is I need to remind myself that I am not the Messiah. It's above my pay grade. And it's my job to, to kind of drop this bomb and I fly away, but how is that going to help them two years from now? And I think we've got to, we create resources for them. We have curriculum their school can begin implementing. We tell them get involved in youth group because you're going to become like your friends. A friend of mine says friends are like elevators. They bring you up or bring you down. And so we try to point out all the different ways that they need to take and own this. Like if you want to live this out, God's going to provide all the means for you, but you've got to make the choices necessary. And you know, it's going to be received like the gospel was received. I mean, one girl came up to me after last week's talk, the very next day I was giving another talk at her school to the junior high kids, and she came up to me, she gave me a big hug, and she said, look, I'm already wearing the miraculous medal you gave me, and I broke up with my boyfriend yesterday, and I'm so happy. Uh, and so some people, you'll have that immediate fruit, other times the, you know, the fruit won't fully ripen for another 10 years. I've, I've met some boys, heard my talk in high school, had a big change, dropped, hit rock bottom five years later in college, and then remembered, oh, I remember that guy came to my high school. Then they got on YouTube, started watching hours of videos, and had a reconversion. So you never know. But that's why I think we can reach him most, not by motivational speaking, but by prayer and fasting. We need to not become self-reliant on our own charisms to expect conversion of the right, galaxy. Right. Amen. Well, there's, there's so much more that we can talk about, and we will. So stay tuned for more Franciscan University Presents. What resonated within me when I first read The Theology of the Body was that we were all made in the image and likeness of God. 
Um, and so something that I've tried to implement into my friendships and into my relationships is being able to look at the person in the eye. And I think that's very important because when you look at someone in the eye, you're not just looking at someone's eyeballs. You're looking at the person. You're looking at the eternal being that God has created. When I came to Franciscan University my freshman year, I knew right away that I wanted to join a household. It just was a matter of which one. As soon as I heard about Crown of Creation and their focus on the theology of the body, I knew that I wanted to join this amazing sisterhood that would help me to live out the theology of the body in all of my relationships. At Franciscan University at Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about conveying Catholic sexual ethics to teens and young adults with our guest, Jason Everett. And um, Jason, you, six continents, over a million young people, I would say you really have an understanding of how are young people living out this message in positive and negative ways. Can you just give us maybe a bit of a snapshot of yeah. uh, what young people are going through these days? Yeah, and they've taught me a lot. I gave a high school talk in New York and I told the kids after, if you wanna hang out and talk, I'll be here to listen. And the students formed a line seven hours long. Mm -hmm. And they would come up and say, I've never said this to anyone before, but, and then it comes out, the uh, abortion, the addiction, the cutting, the abuse, you name it. And you know, when you look in the media, you think everything is going to hell in a handbasket. But what's interesting is the Centers for Disease Control, every two years for the last 27 years, has released what's called the YRBS, the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance Study. Mm -hmm. And it's basically charting sexual risk amongst adolescents in America. And what they found is the sexual activity rate of American high school students for the last 27 years, the rates have been constantly going down. This summer was the lowest they've ever recorded. 28% uh, are currently sexually active, 39% have ever had sex, meaning most high school students in the country are virgins. And you hmm. tell this to the kids, and they're, oh, I thought I was only virgin in Ohio, like there's another one here. <laughs> um, so the, the, the perception amongst teens is they, they vastly overestimate the sexual activity of their peers. Unfortunately, although one side of the scale is going in the right direction, the other side perhaps not so much, because they weren't looking at, okay, how many of them are sexting on their phones? How many of them are engaging in this or that? So uh, the pendulum of the sexual revolution is swinging back in some ways, but in other ways it's swinging in an unhealthy direction that's very self-centered on the kids in terms of what they're doing with their phones and isolation. That's a good point because it's sort of good news, bad news, because yeah. the high-risk behavior is going down, which is good news, but the kind of isolation that you have with masturbation, with sexting and all of that, I mean, that certainly is on the rise. And, you know, even the term masturbation is such a clinical term. You know, you go back 60, 70 years and, you know, the term that was used in the old manuals that trained priests was self-abuse. Yeah. You know, and that might seem like a, a bad term, but like St. Thomas More, it's not a likable term, it's not a likable thing, you yeah. know. Now it's self-pleasuring, mm -hmm. you know, and to me that's sort of like uh, selling opioids alongside of halls, you know, or uh, ludens and just saying, well, this will take care of your ill. And, and I think the lies have been increasing and intensifying. And so whether we have this statistic going up or down, I think we have to step back and recognize 
that the anti-Christian shape of the formation of young people now yeah. has, has reached new hues, new yeah. darkness, you know. Well, not only anti-Christian, but I think it could be argued that it's anti-human, it's post-human. Yeah. I mean, the fact that somebody would be a virgin because he can't bear the company of another person, and so he seeks refuge in the self-centered self. I mean, that kind of solipsism is really pathological. It's a dis-ease with being. I mean, man is made to be in relation with others. Mm -hmm. And to shrink from that argues to a terrible kind of insensibility to what it means to be human. I mean, what was that book? Was it Robert Bella called Bowling Alone? I mean, why on earth would somebody do that? I mean. Or go bowling at all. You're betraying something. I think I might be. But, you know, a good friend of mine who works with young people said that, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, we wanted to invite people into a personal relationship with Christ. And they would say, who's, who's Jesus? Today, you invite them in a personal relationship with Christ, and they say, what's a relationship? Yeah. And obviously, that's at the cause, I think, of yeah. a lot of what you've been seeing mm-hmm. over these you know, decades yeah. of doing ministry, that the heart of it, you know, really the sexual activity is more of a fruit, but the root cause is yeah. a brokenness in, in relationships. Yeah, I'd heard of a college student over in Pennsylvania who committed suicide, and she was an all-star athlete, straight-A student, absolutely beautiful college girl, jumped off the parking garage and killed herself. And the classmates and were like, I can't believe she did this. She looked so happy on Instagram. You know, how could she not be happy? All her filtered photographs were perfect. But that's what they're, this, uh, this, this filtered media, social media, gives them such a false sense of connectedness that they mm-hmm. might have 10,000 friends on social media, but no one knows what kind of day you had yesterday. Yeah. And that false sense of intimacy drives them deeper to this loneliness where they're seeking out in a way to medicate the, the loneliness through sexting, porn, and other types of things that leave them emptier afterwards. You know, instead of channeling Regis, I want to begin channeling John Paul II. <laughs> yeah. Because I think that his approach that we call the theology of the body is the single biggest breakthrough we have, and it didn't come too early. You know, it just came in time for a generation that would almost be unreachable by any other means. And I'm not saying it's the be-all and end-all of Catholic moral theology, but it really does something that wasn't being done before. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you do with John Paul and how they respond to that kind of vision. Well, I think the young people respond to him. I remember one priest who knew him said that as a young person said he was, as a priest, he was happy and demanding. And that's yeah. so different than what we have today. We have people who are, aren't particularly happy and not very right. demanding. Right. And right. the reason we responded to him at these World Youth Days is because he was loving and he was uncompromising. Yeah. And there was something so attractive right. in someone who would say, you can be the saints of the new millennium. Right. He knew that youth was made for heroism. Mm-hmm. And he was himself heroic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and, and that's, teens are good at spotting a fake. compelling. What was the book you wrote on John Paul entitled? It was called St. John Paul the Great, His Five Loves. His Five Loves. How many copies of that have you given away to young people? Um, they've moved more than a quarter of a million of them. A quarter of a million. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. I've been blessed. So. Praise God. Man, well, you, you could demand that they pay you for it and you could <laughs> <retire>. <laughs> Probably a good idea. <laughs> you could move to the Amalfi Coast. So maybe someone who's listening that might not be familiar with it, how would you di- distinguish uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body from 
abstinence education. Yeah, well, abstinence education is largely, I mean, there's lots of good people doing it, but essentially it revolves around like, hey, if you become sexually active, you know, you could end up with gonorrhea, you could get somebody pregnant, your grades might go down, you could get your heart broken, and as a result, you don't wanna do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, whereas with John Paul's approach, it isn't so much, you know, this list of thou shalt nots. Now, here are the 12 things you can do and can't do. It's more, what does it mean to be human? You know, who am I and what does it mean to authentically live in the image and likeness of God? And so it's rooted in an in in understanding of what it means to be human because what we're looking at today is you'll have people like Lady Gaga saying things like, born this way. She has a CD of her and she's got the face of like a, a woman with these fangs and the body of a motorcycle and she's screaming and it says, born this way. And the first thought is, well, I certainly hope not. Right. But what we're dealing with here is someone who says, look, I have these inclinations, therefore this is how God created me, yeah. therefore I need to act out in this way. Mm. And what we're looking at here is they don't understand the full picture of what it means to be human, that God created us this way, then there was a fall, and this is the state we're in right now, but then there's a glorified state too, and if you just jump into this middle chapter of the book and say that's everything, we'll think the church is out of touch with reality by expecting us to behave in any other way. You know, it's, it's distressing enough that somebody would think of themselves as being a motorcycle, yeah. uh, or even a ghost in the machine, yeah. which is Descartes' position. Mm -hmm. But for people to buy her records, to, to, to swallow that kind of moonshine, that's really disheartening. I mean, the Pope really nailed it. I mean, the, the solution is not moralism. The solution is the recovery, the rediscovery of the meaning of the human person. In, in George Weigel's wonderful biography of, of, of Pope St. John Paul II, uh, he pounces on this letter that Carol Vatiwa wrote to Henri de Lubac back in 1968, in which he said, look, the crisis of modernity is a kind of degradation, a pulverization of the idea of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. And the solution is not more, don't do this, don't do that, but a recapitulation of the mystery of the human person. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the theology of the body. That's his papacy. The spousal, yeah. nuptial meaning of the body. It's explosive. Yeah. I mean, that was the theological time bomb. And now we're dealing, I think, with the counterpunch to the theology of the body, that the body really has no meaning, that the sexual yeah. difference is a threat and it's something to be eliminated. Right. Right. Because if we can get rid of what, what separates us, our sexual differences, then we can finally have peace. But this is the inversion of his yeah. spousal meaning of the body. And the, the really body is. reveals in our sexual differences our complementarity that we're made to be an, a gift and an image of God himself. But if we can erase the sexual difference, it turns the T.O.B. upside down. It is paradoxical how the body is at once a boundary because it's me, it's not you, and yet it becomes a bridge, but only yeah. a reliable bridge to the extent that you're entering into something that isn't just transient mm -hmm. or utilitarian. But that sort of thing doesn't really fit much of what our culture is instilling in us. Yeah. You know, the only thing that really unites us is the money that we have to go and do the things that we privately desire to do. Yeah. And so there, there, there aren't that many competitors for the gospel. You know, there's not much good news out there. And so I have to believe that coupling the gospel with the theology of the body and bringing people back to the body of Christ that is there on the cross, not just being battered, but giving himself, turning the act of death into the act of love so that we can act in an entirely different way, it's too good to be true, except it's the truth, yeah. it's the good news, you know? And I think the way you couple that, you know, you reach down and take those high school kids and the young adults, wherever they are, 
but then you'll gradually allow the Holy Spirit to use you to raise them to where Christ has called them to be. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary if you have addressed more than a million young people. I mean, that's really where the rubber meets the road. One million, I mean, that sounds like an abstraction, but for heaven's sakes, you've pretty much met one million people. You've spoken to them. You've connected with that many people. That, that's extraordinary. Like this guy who does porn 24 hours every weekend. I mean, you ask him, how's that working out for you? Yeah. I mean, is it making you happy? Do you yeah. feel fulfilled? Yeah. You address the human being in his predicament. How can we help you get out of this mess? Yeah. And he acknowledges, my life is a mess. Yeah. I'm powerless to do anything about it. Yeah, and, and that's why I think they're so ripe for the truth, yeah. because they know they're not satisfied, and he's hooking up in the sexting and the texting, and that's why I think John Paul's message is so uh, riveting for them, because he explained that chastity can only be thought of in association with the virtue of love. If we don't make that connection in their brains, it isn't gonna last. Yeah. Because they need to understand that abstinence with your girlfriend is not waiting to get married to love her. This is a profound expression of sacrificial love and that you're loving her better tonight by being abstinent than by making love because you're doing what's best for her, not just what feels good in the moment. Yeah. And kids, they understand this. Girls understand this. Because if you can just get the girls to agree with you, right. then hey, the guys don't have much of an option <laughs> but to go along. You know, but I find the boys, boys are the most common standing ovation we get is the all boys audiences. Really? Right? They're surprisingly just hungry for this. They, they're ready to be challenged. Yeah. yeah. And they feel free to, to clap and to cheer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because they know that I'm not there telling them that they're the problem. I'm but not, no, I all, think you guys are the solution. If it's an all-boys school, then the girlfriend's not looking at him standing well, up Yeah, and then he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, well, we got to talk after this talk. Yeah, what are you cheering about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What are some of the ways you might tweak the message or emphasize the message between a purely guy audience or a purely girl audience? Because obviously, uh, you know, the message has a different nuance. I, I know one yeah. of your most successful books is uh, how to find how, your soulmate without losing your soul. Yeah, yeah with losing your soul, which is directly for women, really, yeah. primarily for women. So yeah. maybe just share a little bit about different approaches for different genders. Yeah, I met a student here last night. He said he's read that book for girls. He's read it twice, <laughs> and he started a men's book study about it <laughs> because the first chapter is the top ten guys to avoid. And I find a lot of guys reading. They're like, uh oh, I'm number three and seven here. I got to work <laughs> on some business here. Um, but I find with, with the guys and the girls, you know, so many stereotypes. I think we need to be careful of avoiding of like porn that's a guy problem and then yeah. girls think oh it is oops I struggle with that I shouldn't even confess this I'm some freak of nature so mm. things that we used to think of as particularly male issues now have crossed over and, and many young women are now looking into this thing thinking okay well, I'm gonna watch a little porn thing who do I need to be how do I need to act what do I need to look like? What do I need to do? And I try to tell them, you were not created to be porn. You were created to be loved. Mm -hmm. um, but with that being said, I, I, we do take different approaches of an all-boys audience versus the all-girls, trying to really listen to them. Like, what is it that they really want to know? Because mm -hmm. nothing is less important than the answer to a question nobody is asking. Yeah. So I want to know, what is the questions that they're asking, and how can the gospel fill in that void? Right. And, and there is a, a unifying theme. It's the human heart. It's the same everywhere. It beats mm -hmm. with the same needs. It vibrates with a, a need, a thirst for love, yeah. joy, happiness, salvation, freedom, yeah. beauty. I mean, that speaks across uh, lines of gender, sex, race, everything. You know, my father was in the Second World War with General Douglas MacArthur, and he would describe what it was like to liberate islands where GIs had been in caves for days and weeks, often dying of thirst and hunger. And when they came out, you know, you would have to keep them from drinking the salt water yeah. because it would just instantly kill them. It would, be, it would expedite death exponentially. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and, and our culture is sort of put, you know, it's, it's, it's a table of ice cold salt water yeah. to quench your thirst. And <laughs> it doesn't slake your thirst, it just quickens. And, and this is why I think, you know, distinguishing between what is authentic from what is counterfeit yeah. and coming back to that in different ways over and over again. That's the only way this culture, this is the only way I can be reached. Yeah. You know? And yeah. when we come back, we're going to hear a little bit more from Jason on how to give them the living water uh, when we come back with Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. My household is called Corpus Christi Household here at Franciscan University. We are the men's theology of the body household, living out what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God in a culture that doesn't really understand sexuality. In such a sexually based society that we have today, um, I feel like not just the woman is objectified, but also the man. Um, and understanding the importance of true intimacy between man and woman and woman to man and the complementarity that the two share is important because without that understanding and that knowledge and the, of what that is, then it cripples the foundation of the family and then it hurts generations to come. You don't have to trade top flight academic programs for a passionately Catholic identity. You can have both. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll not only deepen your faith, you'll be prepared for real world success by dedicated professors for whom excellence isn't just a goal, but the standard. Ready to get started? Check out franciscan.edu. Welcome back and thank you for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents. We're coming to you from the Communication Arts Studio here on the campus of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment and my colleagues in the theology department, Dr. Regis Martin and Dr. Scott Hahn, are guiding our discussion with Jason Everett. Jason, um, as we've been talking about chastity and these relationships, uh, we touched briefly earlier on gender issues, uh, homosexuality. How often do you address those topics when you're talking to young people? Um, in the high school audiences, it's now every single assembly. Mm. I remember one high school priest said to me, he said, you know, the kids at his campus are all pro-gay for the same reason they're pro-life. They just think it's mean not to be. Mm. And that's the extent to which they've really thought through this. It's, it's on the level of sentiments. And I didn't used to speak about it because I thought, how do I really introduce such a volatile and important topic in a five-minute soundbite while doing it justice? But then those students would come to me, the LGBT crowd, and say, well, you didn't talk about us. How do we fit into this? And I explained to them, well, this is the struggle I'm having. Would you please pray for me that I would know what to say? And they were very eager to say, yeah, we will pray for you. And then stories and experiences started coming in my life, and I started sharing those in the assemblies and explain to the kids that, you know, you're told that if you experience same-sex attractions, you only have two options, okay? Option one is hide in the closet, or option number two is come out of the closet, embrace your sexual attractions as your identity, forget about God, the church, and the Bible, and do what you want with your body. Gay pride or gay shame, what's your pick? And so someone could easily feel stuck in the middle and be like, well, I don't want to throw away God, but I mean, why should I live in shame of an attraction I never chose to begin with? And then I try to explain to them that your sexual attractions are not your identity. 
Like if you experience homosexual attractions, your identity is your beloved child of God. But you're living in a culture that wants you to sexualize your identity like it's sexualizing your cheeseburgers and deodorant. Like everything's gotta be sexual now. Mm -hmm. And even human attractions now are getting over-sexualized. And I try to explain this to them. Like, girls are coming up to me and saying, well, I'm really confused because I think I'm straight. My friends say I'm a lesbian, so maybe I'm bisexual. I'll see what's going on. And they'll say, well, the boys in my school are really repulsive and violating. There's a girl on my campus though. I just come alive in her presence. We can talk for hours on end. My friends are telling me that the girl crushed. We should experiment together. And I said, I don't know if no one's told you this, you're supposed to be attracted to everything attractive. So your friend, her wit, her charm, her personality, doesn't that draw you to her? She said, yes. I said, well, I go to a Bible study and there's an 85-year-old man there with a gigantic beard and I'm completely attracted to that guy. I just want to <laughs> be around him, his sense of humor, his joy, because not every human attraction is a sexual attraction. Hmm. And the girl's eyes just lit up. I've never thought about it like that before. Now, it isn't always that cut and dry. And some people do experience those sexual attractions of members of the same sex. But chastity is for them too and that God has a plan for them as well. And this is not about denying their identity, but discovering it, that you're a child of God before anything else. I do think you've landed on something significant though, because the default position for most faithful Catholics is that homosexuality is disordered. Mm -hmm. And of course, we would say it is. It's not sin just to have the orientation, but only if you give into it. But the antidote is not heterosexuality because heterosexuals are disordered too, yeah. at least one of them that I know, yeah. you know. And so sons of Adam, daughters of Eve are disordered by, because of original sin. Whether it's a heterosexual attraction, I don't wanna identify myself as simply a heterosexual or else I'll pursue every attractive woman. Yeah. I wanna identify myself as a child of God who has a vocation that becomes a sacrament and then Kimberly and our six kids and 15 grandkids and growing and all of the rest. But that, that notion of disorder is so much, I think it's so much more, it's so much easier to say they're disordered mm -hmm. rather than saying we're disordered. Yeah. Yeah. And even if there's a difference in kind and not simply degree, as some would argue, regardless, yeah. we're disordered. Yeah. We need the medicine of mercy desperately. Yeah. We're not trying to convert you, we're trying to convert. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and if we approach them reeking of that pride and self-righteousness of like, we've got it together because our, our attractions are right. this way, yeah. yours are that way, so I'm gonna try to help. I mean, they're just gonna push us away. Right. right. No, I, I, I recognize that it's always important to guard against sanctimony, yeah. you know, the pious uh, superiority of my position, and I'm gonna use it as a club to beat you into uh, submission. And and you both put it so, pers you know, so persuasively, winsomely even, uh, we don't want to reduce people. Uh, that's the sin of reductionism. Mm -hmm. And we have to uh, keep it at arm's length. But what do you do with a culture that is awash in erotomania, that yeah. does, as you say, sexualize everything, even a hot dog? Yeah. How, how on earth do you overcome that? Well, I think we've got to look at, okay, how did God begin the whole plan of human redemption? Yeah. Through the Holy Family. And I think he wants to continue his work of redemption through holy families. And we, it's so easy to get overwhelmed by looking at all the corruption and all the problems. But the biggest threat to marriage is not gay marriage. The biggest threat to the institution of marriage isn't all these other. The biggest threat to marriage is me and my selfishness yeah. and my pride yeah. and my resentfulness and my unforgiveness. Like that's the biggest threat to marriage. And so long as I think the target's somewhere out there, then I'm not gonna be that useful to the church because what the church needs now is holy families and people living out their vocation as God is asking them to. And that is the greatest secret weapon of the church. I mean, G.K. Chesterton said that the family is a cell of resistance to opposition. And that's truly what we need to be now, I think, more than ever. Right, right. How could I, as uh, a father, seven kids, you know, I 
uh, you know, you travel around the country, you've got degrees in theology and counseling. I have some degrees in theology too, but I'm thinking of maybe a listener uh, who is inspired by what you're saying and would love to pass this on yeah. to their kids or their grandkids, mm -hmm. perhaps. Can you uh, help us understand just maybe some key principles into how we can start talking about this language of love with our children? We'll start when they're y real young, affirm their genders. Yes. You know, when I put my little boy to bed, thank you, Jesus, for making Joseph a boy, and then one day he's gonna be a man like daddy. Just affirming them, breathing mm -hmm. into them that affirmation. Um, you know, and as they grow older, you talk about different parts of the body and modesty and privacy, and it's not some chastity bomb. Like, people say, when do I give my kid the talk? <laughs> like, it's some chastity bomb you drop on them when they're 13, it's gonna inoculate them from lust forever. Like, you do that in no other subject. You know, when do I give my kid the math talk? You know, when right. do we have the literature right. talk? Um, you know, it's got to be a lifelong conversation. Mm -hmm. Same thing with human sexuality. And you can't expect as a parent your kid to obey the church's teachings on sex before marriage right. if you're not willing to obey the church's teaching on sex inside of marriage. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And so it's much more, like any virtue, it's more easily caught than taught. Right. It's sort of like the title of that poem by Hopkins, The Blessed Virgin Compared to the Air We Breathe. If it's not atmospheric, if it doesn't sort of, you know, form the ambience in which people live and move, then it doesn't work. It has to be infectious. And I, I think it applies especially to fathers with their daughters, mm -hmm. because you're really the first guy he's, she's going to know. Oh, yeah. And so it's important to affirm her, to recognize her femininity, that she has charm and beauty, that she's full of grace, and that she reminds you of, of uh, something radiant and pure. If you don't affirm her, then she's gonna look elsewhere oh, for yes, that affirmation. It, yeah. yeah, we did a show years ago on a, I can't remember the doctor's name, he was a convert from Judaism, but he was focusing in on affirmation deprivation neurosis, yeah. and how unaffirmed women are. Yeah. Conversely, how much a uh, uh, fatherly affirmation of a woman when she's just growing up as a girl creates a very strong, confident woman. Yeah. And I see that in my wife, you know. I mean, uh, I remember worrying about my father-in-law creating affirmation addiction, you know, in his <laughs> yeah. own kids. I had never seen so much affirmation in my life until I realized I'm a now a junkie too. Yeah, He's affirming well, yeah. me as a son-in-law like my own dad never did. Yeah. But I, I do think that, that the act of fathering from all eternity in a certain sense is not primarily a physical act, certainly not in God. It is an affirmative act. He speaks the word mm -hmm. and the word was with God and the word was God and that word is son but not son because he has certain bodily equipment. Son because the, the father's affirmation of the truth of love is the very source of communion in God and then in us. And I, I think that the single greatest need right now is for men to grow up as sons of God and to image the father, especially at home. Right. By affirming their sons, which I think is easier in some ways, because you tend to see yourself. And then affirming your daughters is harder because you tend to see, oh, her or that girlfriend or yeah. that, you know, yeah. slut in high school. And you're, you're projecting things onto her when she really needs you just to smother her with yeah. affection and yeah. affirmation. Yeah. You know, in, in a Catholic vision of, of the real, uh, you take Genesis seriously. When God spoke the word, it wasn't a word of condemnation, of judgment. He said, this is good, this is very good. Yeah. And then he, he said, I can make it even better. And so he fashions Eve mm -hmm. uh, to compliment uh, Adam. I mean, that's affirmation. 
Yeah. Uh, that's primal affirmation. And so we ought not to be ashamed. I mean, that's why the theology of the body really does lift, exorcise even, this demon of Manichaeanism that yeah. deprecates the body, the flesh, that it's no good, that, it, that at best it's suspect, mm -hmm. it's disposable. You've got to concentrate on spirit. That's balderdash. Yeah. God became man, he became flesh. Yeah. And flesh at the center uh, was then crucified. I mean, we, we've got to begin with that. That's the, that's the operating premise. Yeah. And you know, this message is so important. I mean, you've seen a million young people, but we wish it was 10 million or you know, 20 million. Yeah. You can only go so many places. And I know that was part of the impetus for the Chastity Project, yeah. being able to provide resources yeah. uh, for people who are looking to pass on this message. Can you just tell us a little bit about how that started and, and what that looks like, especially for our viewers that might really benefit from the resources it offers? Yeah, well, the teens today, are, you could say, are living on a digital continent, mm. and we need to go to that continent to evangelize them. And so we, through social media, have reached on some days up to three million teens in a single day mm. by through Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, all these places where the kids are at, by posting these messages and they start sharing them. So we've got a social media presence. Um, we also have a website that has literally hundreds of questions and answers that the kids are wondering. Well, what about this and what about that? Why does the church teach this? So we've got video, audio, written questions for them. Uh, we have more than uh, three dozen different books and CDs that leaders can obtain or teens for $3 or less. Like everything we publish, we make $3 or less. Nice. So that way youth ministers who typically get about a six or seven figure budget um, to work with um, don't have to break Including the bank. Including the decimal points. Yeah, of course. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to break the bank to be, give every kid in their youth group a book that they might need or a yeah. CD. So, you know, our job is equipping the greatest apostles and evangelists, which I don't think are motivational speakers. Mm. You know, I think they're the rank and file laity out there that have hearts on fire for souls and they want to get these resources out. So you don't have to be a great speaker. You just have to have a heart for the gospel. So we just try to make everything as cheap as possible. You can get this stuff online. If you have no money, we'll just give it to you for free. Just go on the site, launch a project. We'll donate whatever you want. You're right, it's only really reducible to having a heart for young people, mm -hmm. but having a heart for young people, but not having great resources, yeah. leaves you somewhat bereft mm -hmm. and incapable of reaching them. So, you know, if, if you think of anything else, <laughs> interrupt me. <Yeah. laughs> because, you know, uh, supplying resources right now, digitally, but also in concrete, yeah. you know, books and CDs and that kind of thing. I mean, this to me is the lifeline, more than any life preserver and rope. Yeah. This is the thing that will reach young people, along with relationships, youth pastors, parents as well as teachers. You know, you just never know how your life, your relationship, your conversations will be the one homily they hear. Yeah, because th these resources get, get places that I'm never gonna go. One, That's right. one woman wrote to us and she saw my talk when she was a stripper. And she heard the presentation and she not only quit stripping, she got our DVD of my chastity talk and brought it with a television set into the strip club to no. show the other women uh, the DVD of our chastity talk. And so <laughs> that's, that's a place I'm about. not gonna end up giving a talk. So <laughs> right. that's why these resources are so important because I mean, and now she gives pro-life talks for the Catholic Church. Oh and so goodness. I mean, yeah. just and, and the, the, these conversions are happening because we've asked more than a hundred convents of nuns to intercede for our ministry. Mm. Those are the heavy hitters. Wait, wait, They're wait, on the front lines. We 
We have written letters, and we do so every year, to more than 100 convents of religious sisters globally who have spiritually adopted our ministry and intercede before the Blessed Sacrament, sometimes day and night, for the teens that I'm talking to. We, we, those cloistered Carmelites are like heaven's high command. Right? Oh, yeah. You know? yeah no, I'm not on the front the artillery. That's I'll be the, serving them drinks in yes. heaven. You know, I get all the credit now, but I know who's Jason, heavy when, lifting. Jason, when were you first hit with this sunburst? I mean, as a student, when, when did this happen? It was here. It was here. I mean, I had a good youth group, but the most formative four years of my life was spent on this campus. Oh my. Um, so the fellowship of the brothers in the dorm, the oh. witness of the faculty, not just talking theology, but living it with their families, yeah. um, praying a rosary with some of the faculty. I mean, it was just so new to me. And I fell in love with John Paul, read Love and Responsibility for the first time. And I was doing crisis pregnancy counseling in Pittsburgh while also leading high school retreats and seeing all this brokenness and then wait a minute, discovering the antidote to so right. much of this hurt right. and realizing like there's this death and destruction everywhere and I'm holding in my hands this antidote to this culture of death. Yeah. And so I realized now I need to take this and yeah. go bring it to the- So instead of cursing the darkness, uh, you're lighting candles. Yeah. And so many, you're not doing it alone. You're, you've got a good team. Yeah, no, the, the intercessors, that, that any conversion that happens, I know it's because right, of them. Right, yeah, yeah, praise God. Well, when we come back, we're gonna hear some final thoughts on conveying Catholic sexual ethics to teens and young adults coming up next. My patron saint is Pope St. John Paul II. I believe his theology of the body message on sexuality has the power to impact everyone's lives and ultimately change the world. So one of our go-to saints that my household goes to is St. Michael the Archangel because he is truly in the battle fighting for us. And so now more than ever do we need his intercession. Corpus Christi household, we pray a litany to St. Raphael every week during our holy hour to ask for his intercession during these trying times in our society. I myself have a huge devotion to St. Philomena. She's my model for purity. She's my sister in Christ who's leading me on to holiness. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy. And you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. Regis, could you start us off with Yeah, uh, Jason, I'm, I am so in awe of what you've done and how well you express what you've done that uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to say anything at all uh, because I want to hear one more thunderclap uh, from you. But I, I will make uh, this uh, observation. It is uh, arresting how you've managed to seize control of a media, which I have thought all my life to suspect uh, and to dismiss. I'm, I'm sort of a Luddite at heart. I want to unplug everything. I want to build a cabin in the woods and then maybe read uh, uh, Augustine's Confessions, maybe invite my wife and a couple of kids, and that's it. Uh, retreat, escape, a sanctuary uh, in the backwoods. Uh, or like John Sr., you take the television set, you pick it up, and you throw it through the picture window. Uh, I've never done that because I, I can't afford to find another picture window. 
Uh, and the TV is sometimes pretty enticing. But what you've done with modern media is co-opt it. You've baptized it, converted it. You've mobilized it on behalf of virtue. And that is so counterintuitive. And yet you've succeeded uh, beyond probably your own wildest dreams. I mean, only God is not surprised by what you've done because you've harnessed, I, I think, pretty successfully your energies to his will. And uh, that's a colossal achievement. You're a blooming saint. Oh. Uh, and I wish <laughs> I have you to run well. That by my wife first. <laughs> uh, and I, you, you do have a saving humility. You recognize it's, it's not a matter of talking to a million teens. It's a matter of talking to one teen at a time. Mm. Sort of like Jesus who welcomes that woman at the well and, and has a conversation with her. He doesn't give her a memo. He doesn't tell her, here's a YouTube video yeah. you've got to check out. He talks to her. And, and exposes, reveals, lays bare her soul and her hunger for wholeness. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think your message uh, consists of. And I, I hope it goes on and on and on. Nice. If, you know, if you win, then you don't have a job. Okay? <laughs> Pretty good job security in the meantime. <laughs> right. Yeah, thank you so much. Great. Scott? Yeah, I want to express the gratitude and the awe and echo Regis, but I want to redirect the flattery towards those cloistered Carmelites, you know, and thank God for the high command of those, yeah. those prayer warriors because, you know, a million people, six continents, all of the books, you know, all of the resources that you make available either for free or less than three dollars, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, but the thing that I am most in awe of, most grateful for is uh, your marriage and your family and uh, the need that we have and the way that that need is met by a wife who recenters us. Mm -hmm. And I see that when I've seen your family when we were out visiting, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the Halloween party yeah. and all of that stuff. But uh, I, I, it reminds me of the fact that, you know, we're not out to, to save them. We are them. We need to be saved. Yeah. Even in the process of allowing God to channel His mercy and love through us, the sacramentality of your marriage to me is the thing that we need to be in most awe of. And those seven kids that you are mirroring, that you're imaging uh, God's fatherhood to them. And I think th there's, I'm just carrying coal to Newcastle, I'm preaching to the choir, I'm saying things that you already know, but I'm also saying things that I need to hear again and again as a husband and as a father. You know, I, I'm reminded of what this Jesuit once said in a doctoral seminar when I was thinking of coming into the church. He said, we were discussing religion and politics, and he just said, if Catholic couples simply live the grace of the sacrament of matrimony in one generation, we would have a transformed society. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's hyperbole, but the more you think about it, the more you realize that's exactly right. Yeah. So keep doing all of the things that you do, but keep coming home and getting recentered, yeah. get to confession, you know, and recognize that it's not a sacrament. You know, she's the sacrament. And yeah. I think that is that is the greatest gift that you can give to the kids and all the rest of us as well. Yeah, well, I, have to, oh, I have to thank you guys because it was at your feet that I studied and learned 20 years ago when I graduated here. But, you know, I have to agree with what that professor said that, you know, the greatest tool of evangelization is for a man and a woman to love each other as they should because if they do, then they kind of make visible this whole invisible love of God mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a more concrete way than the world is, is seeing and all the confusion and all the brokenness. And I know in the mess that's outside of the church and inside the church, it can be disappointing, it can be heartbreaking, but in the same respect, what an exciting time to be Catholic. 
if you look at the whole history of the church, that God from all eternity wanted us to exist right now for such a time as this. That giddy up, like let's go. This is, a, <laughs> this is an exciting time to be Catholic and, it's, and, and we should have some enthusiasm about that. That we shouldn't be afraid of what the world is gonna do to our kids. We should be excited about what our kids are gonna do to the world and just have bringing that optimism and joy because what we have to bring is good news. And so I would ask the viewers, um, if you would please join all those sisters praying for our ministry. If you could offer a rosary, a holy hour, uh, any suffering, cancer, unemployment, alcoholic spouse, like any suffering in your life to offer that for the young people that we speak to. Because I think our viewers have a, a vested interest in my ministry because I could speak to your future son-in-law or daughter-in-law one day. And so, <laughs> so after this talk, I'm going to a high school assembly. I've got two more talks tonight, three high schools tomorrow. And I would just ask, please pray for all the young people that we speak to. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jason, so much for being here. And for you at home, we have a free handout for you written by Jason Everett. It's an excerpt from his book, Theology of the Body in One Hour. This is yours for free by simply going online to faithandreason.com or by calling the number you'll see on screen in a moment. My final thoughts of just this conversation is the virtue and gift of hope. You know, I think, Jason, what you are sharing uh, really gives us a sense of the hunger that young people desire, the truth that they desire. And I think just as young people can be formed in a bias against the faith, I think people of faith can be given a bias against young people. We assume they're unreachable. We assume that they're going to yell at us, call us a bigot. I think one of the most beautiful things you said in this conversation is in all the talks that you've given, the response has always been overwhelming, has been uh, joy-filled, has been grateful in order of hearing this good news. And in terms of living out our families, uh, being visible witnesses of love to that, uh, not being afraid just to invite people into that gospel of love, invite people into an understanding, especially many young people out there who do not have the gift of family, uh, who do not get to see models of Christian living. Let's, in our societies, in our parishes, our communities, allow our lights to shine, to be those models of Christian living, not of judgment, but of love, and proclaiming the truth. Young people can smell a fake a while away. They deserve to know it. You know, I think of the words of St. Paul to Timothy, that we need to be uh, evangelists, whether it's in season or out of season. And many of the messages you're talking about seem like an out of season type thing in terms of the, the LGP, you know, the, the agenda that's out there, the scandals within the church. Maybe we should stop talking about this for a little bit. And the answer is no. Uh, God gave us a good news to share, and we need to be able to do that for others. So again, yeah. Jason, thank you. And thank you for being the kind of student that we hope to have here at Franciscan University. It's our mission to send forth joyful disciples into the world. And we invite all of you listening and watching to join us in that mission to educate, evangelize, and send forth disciples to restore all things in Christ. Uh, there's many ways to connect with this mission. We have life-changing summer conferences for adults uh, and for youth across the states. You can travel on one of our pilgrimages uh, to Italy, Poland, the Holy Land, other sacred destinations around the world. If you want to know more about that or just get more resources for your own faith, uh, we certainly encourage you to go to faithandreason.com where you can get this handout. Uh, you can also check out Jason's uh, resources available at chastityproject.com mm -hmm. yep. uh, where you can see many videos and uh, have many other opportunities. Why don't we just close asking our Blessed Mother uh, for her intercession on all of this in our culture as we pray. Hail Mary, full, full of, of grace, grace, the Lord, Lord is with thee. Blessed, blessed art thou among, among women, women, and, and blessed, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Jesus. 
Holy Holy Mary, Mary, Mother Mother of God, God, pray pray for for us sinners, sinners, now now and at the hour of our death. death. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. St. John Paul, Amen. Pray for us. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.